Festus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Sunday of that week, then the cleansing of the temple the next day on Monday, and then uh, several parables that Jesus told on Tuesday that were aimed at the chief priests and the Pharisees. That They highlighted their unbelief, their wickedness. He's just pointing them out very directly. Then in chapter 22... The Jewish leaders just continue to attack, trying to entangle Jesus. It says in verse 15, to stump him with questions. Jesus always is steady and with authority responds forcefully to each one of these challenges. And the one we're going to look at, of course, is the one where the Pharisee, a lawyer, it says, tried to test Jesus. So we'll pick it up in Matthew 22:35. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus' responses to their questions in chapter 22 led the Jewish leaders to eventually be silenced. Verse 46 says, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. Then in the next three chapters, 23 to 25, Jesus turns to the multitudes and to his disciples, and he offers his last public discourse which starts with another scathing rebuke of the woes to the scribes and Pharisees. So in the middle of this uh, testing period of people coming to Jesus to try to catch him in his words, uh, Jesus summarizes right in the center here the entire teaching of the law and the prophets with these words. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, (coughs) with all your soul, And with all your mind, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if the greatest commandment in all of God's law is to love God. What I wanted to talk about is what does that look like? What does it mean to love God and how are we to love him? Obviously, the scriptures make it clear we can't do this on our own until we come to Christ we, and are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we have no capacity to love God. In fact, we don't, it's just the opposite. We're rebellious. We reject God. He's our enemy. We're enemies of God until he changes our hearts. So it's only when God gives us a new heart that we're drawn to the things of God. We have a desire to know him and to grow to love his word. So if this is an evidence of true faith, that we love God, it's really important that we understand how to do that and what ways are possible. So if we've been saved by faith and through by grace, by God's grace, uh, and we've been given a new heart and a desire for things of the Lord, what does it look like to love him? So Jesus' response to the lawyer in verse 37 is from, of course, Deuteronomy 6. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And here Moses is giving final instructions to 
to, uh, from the Lord to the people of Israel as they prepare to cross into the promised land. Um, and I'm going to read Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9, which will be very familiar to us. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There's a parallel passage, a couple of verses over in Deuteronomy chapter 10, if you want to turn there also. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. So the essence of the law, the focus of the, of the law is about is about loving God. Matthew Henry says of the previous passage in Deuteronomy 6, such is the condescension of divine grace that this is made the first and great commandment of God's law, that we love him and that we perform all other parts of our duty to him from a principle of love. We must highly esteem him, be well pleased that there is such a being, well-pleased in all his attributes and relations to us. Our desire must be towards him, our delight in him, our dependence upon him, and to him we must be entirely devoted. It must be a constant pleasure to us to think of him, hear hear from him, speak to him, and serve him. We must love him with a sincere love, a strong love, a superlative love, an intelligent love, and an entire love. Henry goes on to say that God gives us the means for maintaining this focus in our hearts and houses that it might not wither and go to decay. The first means that he says, Matthew Henry, that he suggests we follow in order to love God is through meditation. Here's what he says about meditation. God's words must be laid up in our heart that our thoughts may be daily conversant with them and employed about them 
and thereby the whole soul may be brought to abide and act under the influence and impression of them. This immediately follows upon the law of loving God with all your heart. For those that do so will lay up his word in their hearts, both as an evidence and an effect of that love, and as a means to preserve and increase it. He that loves God loves his Bible. So we know that to get to know God and to grow in our love for him through his word, the Bible is where God speaks to us and where we have to go. So my question for this evening is, how much are we in God's word? Providentially, our brother Will preached this morning on sanctification and mortification of sin. He described the constant state of being in a war. And you'll remember he quoted John Owens, who said that we must be killing our sin or it will be killing us. And this is a daily fight. Quoting Will again. The word of God is our primary weapon in the war against sin. And even Jesus in in the garden when he was praying for his disciples in John 17, 17, he said to, to the Lord, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So we have a lot of other means of grace. There are many ways that God teaches us, uh, for our spiritual sanctification, our spiritual growth. There's prayer, there's biblical encouragement and exhortation and accountability from family members, from friends, from church members. We have gatherings for corporate worship with preaching. We participate in the sacraments. But all of these are built on the foundation of Scripture. It's only as we take in God's word and meditate on it that we'll grow in our knowledge of God and therefore our love for him. As we know him, we will love him. So, question is then, what are the ways that we can take in God's word and how effective are they in helping us grow in our knowledge of and love for God? Well, this is not biblical, but I'm going to, just mention a theory that came out in the 60s, I think it was in an educational uh, theory, that estimated the average retention rate of information that we take in in different ways. So in other words, they looked at different teaching methods and tried to assess, okay, how effective is this in helping people remember what they were taught? So the the one that uh, is the least, it said, is that we only remember about 5% of what we hear in a lecture. So if we go to a classroom or go to Sunday school or, or other places and we're listening to a lecture, uh, about 95% of that's going to go in one ear and out the other. We might not remember next week, for example, what exactly the three points were that Will talked about today, unless we go back and do some review, right? If all we lean on is what we heard, If we read something after hearing it or while we're hearing it, then we remember maybe 10% of that material. So it's twice as much as just listening if we actually read. If we see an audiovisual presentation, that doubles it again to 20%. We might pick up 20% of what's in a visual that we're listening to and seeing, uh, but even that we're losing 80%, they said. So for things that we hear and read and talk about in a small group, it goes up to 
We can remember about half of what maybe what happened in a, in a group setting. And then the, the higher one is if we actually learn something and then we practice doing it and even teach others, then we're going to be able to remember even more, 75 to 90% of, of the material. So that's kind of, they put it in a pyramid, the least at the top and the, at the bottom of the pyramid is if we're able to actually learn something and practice it and then teach it to others, then we know that we're probably going to remember that. Um, so maybe one reason for pulling out our Bibles when it's being read in the church is that we're not only hearing, but then we're reading, we're seeing it too. So we're increasing the likelihood that we're going to remember so it doesn't mean we should stop listening to the word being read or stop reading, but to know scriptures and know God better, we may need to go further than just hearing and reading. So we should all be working to memorize scripture and meditate on it and commit it to memory so that we have it at the tip of our tongues as we go through life. Um, so Rhonda was a part of a navigator ministry in late in college and then into grad school. And one of the discipleship tools they used is called the Word Hand Illustration. You've got that on your handout that I put at the back there. Um, it's used to, it's a tool that's used by the Navigator Ministries uh, to depict five different ways that we learn from the Bible. Uh, it's pretty simple. Uh, Rhonda did share this with the Women's Outreach. She said it was 25 years ago at Roger and Frost's house. So I guess you weren't there, Julia. But uh, a long time ago. So um, you've got a copy there. I was just going to walk through what it says and what it means. Um, basically, these are ways that we take in the word. We hear, read, study, memorize, and meditate. And, this, and uh, the idea is that um, if we're hearing the word... Uh, let's see, who's got Romans 10, 17? That's, that's a verse that I've got somebody out there going to read. Thank you, sir. So if we hear God's word uh, and we're uh, meditating on it, we can get a little bit of a grip uh, on, on God's word, but with our thumb and our pinky, it's not a very uh, steady, night, like whole, hard uh, grasp on God's word. It's going to. The idea is that the metaphor is that it's hard to uh, to hold on to it. Okay, let's see. Uh, if we read God's word, Revelation one three. Who has that one? <clears throat> okay. Good. So if we hear it and we read it, then we got two fingers on the on the top and we got the thumb down there. So then it becomes a little a little more stable, a little bit less likely that we're going to uh let go of God's word. Uh how about study Acts 17:11? Somebody have that one? Okay, so the Bereans studied God's word and tested. So you add another finger, it's getting harder to uh, to have someone uh, pull that out of your hands. 
All right, then the fourth finger, the most, uh, the strongest one is the memorize. Uh, Psalm 119, 9 through 11. Good. So putting the word uh, into our hearts as we memorize it gives us the, the strongest grip on, uh, on God's word. And it's uh, less likely that it's going to flee from our memory. And then the final one, meditate, is the thumb, Psalm 1, 2, and 3. Okay, so, um, so the idea is we can hear God's word, we can read it, we can study it, memorize it, and then meditate on it, and doing all of those things are, will give us the most opportunity to have it take root in our hearts and then show up when God wants to use us to speak his word to people around us. And you can see here in the in the writing at the bottom of the sheet that they estimate five percent of what we hear. Uh, reading goes up to fifteen percent. Studying thirty five percent of what we study, we will retain. Uh, and then memorizing, assuming we review regularly, um, we can theoretically remember a hundred percent of that and have it at our fingertips, ready to share. Uh, share with others. Um, so that's uh, that's just a tool, a, a visualization of, of how we can take in God's word and how important it is that we do more than just listen or read God's word, but that we, uh, that we go further. Anybody have any comments on that? I don't want to get too informal here, but if anybody has thoughts or comments, questions? All right. Over 500. Yeah, and I know um, the kids are like sponges. You guys can you guys can memorize like whole chapters, and and it's the older we get, the harder it is to get those wheels running. But I think it's not an excuse. I've I've tended to think, oh well, I'm I'm too old for that, but that's not the case. We we just have to work at it, work at it. And there are some good tips. Uh, been going through a study with a young man, and we've been memorizing some scripture, and uh, and I learned some things that I hadn't known about. So when you recite the verse, I've always done it uh, like the navigators teach, where you say the you say the reference, then the verse, then the reference, so that you kind of keep the reference tied to the verse in your mind. Well, this also suggested that you do the reference in just the one or two first words of the verse. Reference in a couple words, and then that has helped me to trigger better, to connect better that, that reference with that verse. Um, that was just a little tip that, that's been very useful to me. Um, 
Okay. So uh, the meditation is that last one that works alongside all the other methods. When we meditate on what we hear, read, study, and memorize, then, of course, it's going to be really more deeply rooted in our hearts. If we're just memorizing to be able to take the test or, or write out the verse for a uh, for homeschool teacher or whoever, um, then it's not deep in our hearts. But by meditating on it, that's, that's a change. Uh, there's a guy named Lonnie Berger who was trained in the Navigators. He wrote a book called Every Man a Warrior. He says, without meditation, the scripture tends to stay cerebral rather than touching our heart, stimulating application and changing your life. So we meditate on the verses as we're reciting them and, and reviewing them, uh, and that's going to really um, help it to the Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives um, much more effectively. So I want to read a section, uh, maybe some of you all saw this, in the July issue of Table Talk. There was an article, it's actually uh, toward the end, um, uh, it's entitled The Significance of the Shema, which, of course, we just read, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's written by a guy named Rhett Dotson, who's a pastor in Hudson, Ohio. Anybody know where that is? I looked it up. It's about halfway between Cleveland and Akron, it looks like, up north. Uh, so he's, <clears throat> excuse me, he's a pastor there. Uh, and um, uh, so it, it, he calls this uh, Shema the theological foundation for discipleship. Uh, it reminded the Israelites as they were about to enter Canaan that And it reminds us in our mixed-up world that there's only one true living God, triune God, and he alone is to be worshipped. And then building on that foundation of there is only one God, he says, a follower of Christ should exhibit a life of wholehearted devotion to the Lord. Immediately after the declaration of God's uniqueness and unity, Moses writes, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Love is a central characteristic of obedient discipleship. When a Pharisee asked Jesus to identify the greatest commandment, the Savior quoted Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. God is one and we must love him with our whole being. A disciple's love is more than an emotion a warm feeling or a sentiment. Love is a heart commitment to give oneself to another in service. When we love God, then we will give our lives to him in service and devotion. We lay down the right to claim our lives for ourselves and we pick up the cross and we follow the one who bore the cross for us. These instructions from the Lord summarize the very essence of what it means to be his disciple. The life of a disciple is also meant to be a life of reflection. This is where he talks about meditation. Moses does not merely emphasize the need for devotion, but he states that if we love the Lord, we are to love and meditate on his word. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, verse 6. As the Puritan pastor Matthew Poole stated it, The scriptures are to be in thy mind to remember them and meditate upon them and in thy affection to love and pursue them, end quote. Christian discipleship should involve both meditation on and memorization of the Bible. Here's an interesting 
comment. The term meditate, the term translated meditate in the Old Testament means to mutter. We are to mutter over God's word, repeating its phrases and sentences to understand them and draw from them their sweetness and spiritual nourishment. As we mutter over God's word, we will store it in our minds for future recall and use as the Spirit's sword. We will hide scripture in our hearts so that we might not sin against our Lord and Savior. God calls us to live a Bible-saturated life so that the truth of the scripture fills us to overflowing and spills from us in our speech. So we become so filled with it that it's the overflow of our, of our mouths and of our lives uh, when we're around others. So I want to challenge us to close tonight to be more diligent in reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating on scripture. If we're not having a daily quiet time with the Lord, looking into his word and talking to him, then that's the place to start. If we're already doing this, I encourage us to go deeper in our study and memory of God's word. This is not only for our personal growth and grace. Think about it. This investment of time will bear fruit in our families, in our work, in our church body. We're blessed to have a close-knit body at Bible Chapel. We regularly spend time after worship, talking, catching up with one another, even connecting outside of church often. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So the command here in Hebrews is not just that we're to show up on Sunday for services. It's also calling us to stir up and exhort one another when we are together as we watch expectantly for the Lord's return. So I've got a few suggestions. You can uh, take them or leave them. Some of you already may be doing this to a certain degree. But what if it became a regular practice in our body, something that we're known for, that we would intentionally talk to one another about the Lord and about scriptures. What if, what if we had questions that we asked one another like, where have you been reading in the word? Or what's the Lord teaching you these days? And some of you do ask me these questions. Has God shown you more of your sin and more of his glory? What verses are you working on memorizing? Or let's just say verse. Um, I'd love to hear you say it. I'll test you. Um, Or how about, here's where I need prayer. Will you pray for me? Or how can I be praying for you? These can all be questions that drive our conversation to um, this call to exhort and Um, encourage one another, stirring one another up to love and good works. Paul describes the word of God as the sword of the spirit in Ephesians 6, 17. If we do not have our sword sharpened and polished and ready, we will not be prepared to fight the sin in our own lives and hold fast the word of life as Paul exhorts the church in Philippi, verses 
14 to 16 of chapter 2 in Philippians. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked, perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So we're, if we're going to shine like lights in the universe, then we must be holding fast his word. So may the Lord drive us deeper into his word that we can love him more and better and reflect Christ to those around us. Let's close with a word of prayer.